0: which made the way to heaven impassable second as the prophet he hath revealed and made known this way to us this he did while he was on earth by himself and since his taking into heaven he hath done it by his ministers ephesians 4:11 third as a king he causes the way to be laid out fenced in and made common for all his people, so as it may well be styled the king's highway. Unquote. Through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, it is through the humanity of Christ that the way to heaven has been opened, renewed and consecrated. But prior to his death, The very life which was lived by the man Christ Jesus only served to emphasize the awful distance which sinners were from God, just as the beautiful veil in the tabernacle shut out the Israelite from His presence. Moreover, the humanity of Christ was a sin-bearing one, for the iniquities of His people had all been imputed to Him. While then the flesh of Christ was uncrucified, proof was before the eyes of men that the curse was not abolished. As long as He tabernacled in this world, it was evident that sin was not yet put away. The veil must be rent. Christ must die before access to God was possible. When God rent the veil of the temple, Clear intimation was given that every hindrance had been removed and that the way was opened into his presence. And having an high priest over the house of God. Verse 21. Here is the third great privilege of the Christian. The third inducement which is presented to him for approaching unto God. The third character in which Christ is presented unto faith. Whereas it might be objected that though the door be opened and a new and living way consecrated, yet we are too impotent to walk therein, or too sinful to enter into the holiest. Therefore, to obviate this, Christ is now set forth as priest over the house of God. Oh, what encouragement is here! As priest... Christ is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Chapter 5, verse 1. He is a living Savior within the veil, interceding for His people, maintaining their interests before the Father, and having an high priest over the house of God. The opening and shows that the contents of this verse form a link in the chain begun in verse 19 so that they furnish a further ground to help us in approaching unto God. The next word, having, while not in the Greek, is obviously understood, and as the principal verb needed to complete the sentence is fetched from verse 19. The adjective should be rendered great and not high. It is not a relative term in comparison with other priests but an absolute one, denoting Christ's dignity and excellency. He is great in His person, in His worthiness, in His position, in His power, in His compassion. To show for whom, in particular, Christ is the great priest, it is here added, over the house of God. John Owen said, The apostle doth not here consider the sacrifice of Christ, but what he is and doth after his sacrifice, now that he is exalted in heaven. For this was the second part of the office of the high priest. The first was to offer sacrifice for the people. The other was to take the oversight of the house of God. See Zechariah 3, 6 and 7. Joshua being an eminent type of Christ, Unquote. The house of God represents the whole family of God, both of heaven and earth. Compare chapter 3, verse 6. The church here below is what is first comprised in this expression, for it is unto it that this encouragement is given, and unto whom, this motive of drawing nigh is proposed. But as it is in the heavenly sanctuary that Christ now ministers and into which we enter by our prayers and spiritual worship, so the house of God includes both the church militant and the church triumphant. When it is said that Christ is over the house of God, It is His headship, lordship, authority, which is in view. The Lord Christ presides over the persons, duties, and worship of believers, in that all their acceptable worship is of His appointment, in that He assists the worshippers by His Spirit for the performance of every duty, in that He directs the government of the church, ordains its officers and administers its laws, in that he makes their service acceptable with God. He is king in Zion, wielding the scepter, protecting the interests of his church, and according to his pleasure, overthrowing its enemies. It is the Lord who adds to the church those who are to be saved. He is the alone head, and as the wife is to be subject to her husband in all things, so the members of Christ's mystical body are to own no other Lord. From Him we are to take our orders. Unto Him we must yet render an account. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 22. Having described the threefold privilege which Christians have been granted, the Apostle now points out the threefold duty which is entailed, the first of which is here in view, namely, to enter the holiest, to draw near unto God as joyful worshippers. To draw near unto God is a sacerdotal act, common to all the saints who are made priests unto God. Revelation 1 6. The Greek word expressing the whole performance of all divine worship, approaching unto the Most High to present their praises and petitions, both publicly and privately. Ebenezer Erskine said, To draw near to God is an act of the heart or mind whereby the soul, under the influence of the Spirit, sweetly and irresistibly returns to God in Christ as its only center of rest. There is a constant improvement of the merit and mediation of Christ in every address made to the Majesty on high. The believer, as it were, fixes himself in the cleft of the rock of ages. He gets into the secret place of the blessed stair by which we ascend unto heaven, and then he lifts up his voice in drawing near to God by the new and living way. He says with David, I will go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. And if God hides his face, the soul will wait and bode good at his hand, saying, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him. He will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me. And if the Lord smiles and grants an answer of peace, he will not ascribe his success to his own faith or fervor, but unto Christ alone. Unquote. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is the requisite manner in which we must approach unto God. It is not sufficient to assume a reverent posture of body or worship with our lips only, nor is God honored when we give way to unbelief. A true heart is opposed to a double doubting distrustful and hypocritical heart. All dissimulation is to be avoided in our dealings with Him who trieth the hearts and the reins and whose eyes are like a flame of fire. God desireth truth in the inward parts and therefore, Son, give me thine heart. Proverbs 23, 26 is His first demand upon us. Nothing short of this will ever satisfy Him. But more, there must be a true heart, a sincere, genuine, honest desire and determination to render unto Him that which is His due. We cannot impose upon Him beautiful language designed for the ears of men or emotional earnestness which is only for effect, does not deceive God. God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 How this condemns those who rest satisfied with the mere outward performance of duty and those who are content to substitute an imposing ritual for real hard dealings with God. Oh, to be able to say with David, with my whole heart, have I sought thee. In full assurance of faith, which means negatively, without doubting or wavering, positively, with unshaken confidence, not in myself nor in my faith, but in the merits of Christ as giving the unquestionable title, to draw near unto the thrice holy God. Full assurance of faith points to the heart resting and relying upon the absolute sufficiency of the blood of Christ which was shed for my sins and the efficacy of His present intercession to maintain my standing before God. Faith looks away from self and eyes the great priest who takes my feeble praise or petitions and purifying and perfuming them with his own sweet incense. Revelation 8, 3 and 4 renders them acceptable to God. But let not Satan deter any timid child of God from drawing near unto him because fearful that he neither possesses a true heart or full assurance of faith. No, if he cannot consciously come with them then let him earnestly come unto the throne of grace for them. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here we have a description of the characters of those who are qualified or fitted to enter the holiest. A twofold preparation is required in order to draw near unto God. The individual must have been both justified and sanctified. Here, those two divine blessings are referred to under the typical terms which obtained during the Old Covenant. Having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience The Jewish cleansing or sprinkling with blood related only to that which was external and could not make the conscience perfect. Chapter 9, verse 9. But the sacrifice of Christ was designed to give peace to the troubled mind and confidence before God. An evil conscience is one that accuses of guilt and oppresses because of unpardoned sin. It is by the exercise of faith in the sufficiency of the atoning blood of Christ the spirit applying experimentally its efficacious virtue, the conscience is purged. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 We are freed from a sense of condemnation and the troubled heart rests in Christ. And our bodies washed with pure water, this figurative language is an allusion to the cleansing of the priests when they were consecrated to the service of God, Exodus 29.4. The anti-typical fulfillment of this is defined in Titus 3.5 as the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. But here the emphasis is thrown on the outward effects of regeneration upon the daily life of the believer. We need both an internal and an external purification. Therefore are we exhorted? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7.1 The sanctity of the body is emphatically enjoined in Scripture. See Romans 12.1 1 Corinthians 6:16 6, 16 and 20. The whole of this 22nd verse contains most important teaching on the practical side of communion with God. While the first reference in the cleansing of the conscience and the washing of the body be to the initial experience of the Christian at his new birth, yet they are by no means to be limited thereto. There is a constant cleansing needed if we are to consciously draw near to the Holy God. Daily do we need to confess our sins that we may be daily pardoned and cleansed from all unrighteousness. First John 1.9 An uneasy conscience is as real a barrier to fellowship with Jehovah as ceremonial defilement was to the Jews so too our walk needs to be incessantly washed with the water of the Word, John 13. The Levitical priests were not only washed at the time of induction into their holy office, but were required to wash their hands and feet every time they entered the sacred sanctuary, Exodus 30:19 and 20. It is just at this very point that there is so much sad failure today. There is so little exercise of heart before God, so feeble a realization of His high and holy requirements, so much attempting to rush into His presence without any previous preparation. John Owen said, Due preparation by fresh applications of our souls unto the efficacy of the blood of Christ for The purification of our hearts, that we may be meet to draw nigh to God, is required of us. This the Apostle hath special respect to, and the want of it is the bane of public worship. Where this is not, there is no due reverence of God, no sanctification of His name, nor any benefit to be expected unto our own souls. Unquote. Arthur Pink Continued in the March Studies Study number three The Life of David His Anointing In our last article, we called attention to the time in which David's lot was cast. The spirituality of Israel had indeed fallen to a low ebb. The law of God was no longer heeded, for every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Judges twenty-one, twenty-five. The terrible failure of the priesthood stands out clearly in the character of Eli's sons. 1 Samuel 2 22. The nation as a whole had rejected Jehovah that he should not reign over them 1 Samuel 8, 7. The one then on the throne was such a worthless reprobate that it is written, The Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. 1 Samuel 15:36. The utter contempt which the people paid to the sacred tabernacle appears in the dreadful fact that it was suffered to languish in the fields of the wood Psalm 132.6 Well then, might our patriarch cry out, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth." Psalm 12.1 But though the righteous government of God caused Israel to be sorely chastised for their sins, he did not completely abandon them. Where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound. Amid the prevailing darkness, almighty power sustained here and there a light unto himself. The heart of one feeble woman laid hold of Jehovah's strength. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of His saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall He thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. For Samuel 2, 8-10 That was the language of true faith, and faith is something which God never disappoints. Most probably, Hannah lived not to see the realization of her spirit-inspired expectations, but in due season they were realized. How encouraging and comforting ought this be to the little remnant of God's heritage in this cloudy and dark day. To outward sight there is now much, very much, to distract and dishearten. Truly, men's hearts are failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Luke 21.26 But blessed be His name, the Lord hath His way in the whirlwind. Nahum 1, three. Faith looks beyond the scene of sin and strife and beholds the Most High upon His throne, working all things after the counsel of His own will. Ephesians one eleven. Faith lays hold of the divine promises which... Declare, at eventide it shall be light. Zechariah 14.7 And when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Isaiah 59.19 In the meantime, God's grace is sufficient for the feeblest who really trusts Him. Samuel was given by God in response to the prayers of Hannah. Hannah and who can doubt that David also was the answer to the earnest supplications of those who sought Jehovah's glory. And the Lord's ear has not grown heavy that it can no longer hear, yet the actions of present-day professing Christians say they believe that it has. If the diligence which is now paid to the ransacking of daily newspapers in search for sensational items which are regarded as signs of the times, and if the time that is now given to Bible conferences was devoted to confession of sin and crying unto God to raise up a man after his own heart whom he would use to bring back his wayward people into the paths of righteousness, it would be spent to much greater profit. Conditions are not nearly so desperate today as they were at the close of the Dark Ages, nor even as bad as they were when God raised up white for you. To your knees, my brethren, God's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. Now not only was the raising up of David a signal demonstration of divine grace working in the midst of a people who deserved naught but untempered judgment, but as pointed out in the preceding paper, it marked an important stage in the unfolding of God's counsels and a further and blessed adumbration of what had been settled upon in the everlasting covenant. This has not been sufficiently emphasized by recent writers who, in their zeal to stress the law element of the Mosaic economy, have only too often overlooked the grace element which was exercised throughout. No new dispensation was inaugurated in the days of David, but a most significant advance was made in the divine foreshadowings of that kingdom over which the Messiah now rules. The mediator is not only the Ark prophet and high priest, but he is also the King of kings and this it is which was now to be specifically typified. The throne as well as the altar belongs to Christ. From the days of Abraham and onwards for a thousand years. The providential dealings of God had mainly respected that people from whom the Christ was to proceed. But now attention is focused on that particular person which he was to spring. It pleased God at this time to single out the specific man of whom Christ was to come, namely David. To quote Jonathan Edwards, David being the ancestor and great type of Christ, his being solemnly anointed to be king over his people, that the kingdom of his church might be continued in his family forever, may in some respects be looked on as an anointing of Christ himself. Christ was, as it were, anointed in him, and therefore, Christ's anointing and David's anointing are spoken of under one in Scripture. I have found David my servant, with my holy oil have I anointed him. Psalm eighty nine twenty. And David's throne and Christ's are spoken of as one. And the Lord shall give him the throne of his father David Luke one thirty two. David knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Acts 2.30. The typical character of David's person presents a most precious line of study. His very name signifies the Beloved. His being an inhabitant of Bethlehem was ordained to point to that place where the darling of God's heart was to be born. His beautiful countenance, for Samuel 16:13, spoke of him who is fairer than the children of men. His occupation as a shepherd set forth the peculiar relation of Christ to God's elect and intimated the nature of his redemptive work. His faithful discharge of the pastoral office forecasts the love and fidelity of the Great Shepherd. His lowly occupation before He ascended the throne prefigured the humiliation of the Saviors prior to His glorious exaltation. His victory over Goliath symbolized the triumph of Christ over the great enemy of God and His people. His perfecting of Israel's worship and instituting of a new ecclesiastical establishment anticipated Christ as the head and lawgiver of His church. But it is in the anointing of David that we reach the most notable feature of our type. The very name or title Christ means the anointed one, And David was the first of Israel's kings who thus foreshadowed him. True, Saul also was anointed, but he furnished a solemn contrast, being a dark foreboding of the Antichrist. At an earlier period, Aaron had been anointed unto the sacerdotal office, Leviticus 8.12, and at a later date we read of Elisha the prophet being anointed. First 1 Kings 19.16 Thus the threefold character of the mediator's office as prophet, priest, and potentate was fully typed out centuries before he was openly manifested here on earth. It is a remarkable fact that David was anointed three times, first privately at Bethlehem, 1 Samuel 16.13, Second by the men of Judah, Second Samuel two four. Third, by the elders of Israel, Second Samuel five three. So also was that august one whom he foreshadowed. This will appear the more evident if we quote the following. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in or from the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, for Samuel 16:13. Concerning our Lord, his humanity was miraculously conceived and sanctified by the Spirit and endowed with all graces in the virgin's womb, Luke 1:35. Second, he was publicly anointed with the Spirit, Acts 10:38 at his baptism and thus equipped for his ministry. See Isaiah 61.1. Third, at his ascension he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Psalm 45.6 and 7. It was to this that the anointing of David more especially pointed. It is striking to observe that God anointed David after Saul, to reign in his room. He took away the crown from him who was higher in stature than any of his people, and gave it to one who resided in Bethlehem, which was little among the thousands of Judah. Micah 5.2 In this way was God pleased to prefigure the fact that he who, when on earth, was despised and rejected of men should take the kingdom from the great ones of the earth. At a later date, this was more expressly revealed. For in the divine interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel declared, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it brake in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. Daniel 2, 44 and 45 it was the mediatorial reign of Christ which David foreshadowed, and of which he prophesied, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of Thy kingdom is a right scepter. Psalm 45, 6. That throne is His mediatorial throne, and that scepter is the symbol of authority over His mediatorial kingdom. Those metaphors are here applied to Christ as setting forth His kingly office together with His dignity and dominion for the throne whereon He sits is the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 8.1 Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness, therefore, God, thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Psalm 45.7 This is in contrast from the days when he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It denotes his triumph and exaltation. It was at his ascension that he was crowned with honor and glory. Just as the priestly office and work of Christ were foreshadowed by Melchizedek and Aaron, So the kingship and kingdom of the Mediator were typed out by both David and Solomon. It would lead us too far afield to enlarge upon this very much, but the interested here will do well to ponder such scriptures as 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, Isaiah 16, 5, Jeremiah 23, 5-6, 33, 14-17, Acts thirteen thirty four, Revelation three seven, and five five. And let us not be robbed of the preciousness of these passages by the attempts of dispensationalists, who would have us believe they belong only to the future. In many instances, their insistence of literalizing many portions of holy writ has resulted in the carnalizing of them and the missing of their true and spiritual import. Let the hearer beware of any system of interpretation which takes away from the Christian any portion of God's Word. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine. Second Timothy 3.16 Between the first and the third anointings of David, or between... Samuel's consecrating of him to the kingly office and his actually ascending the throne, there was a period of severe trials and testings during which our patriarch passed through much suffering and humiliation. Here, too, we may discern the accuracy of our type. David's son and lord trod a path of unspeakable woe between the time when the Holy Spirit first came upon him and his being exalted to the right hand of the Majesty on high. It is indeed blessed to read through the first book of Samuel and take note of the series of wonderful providences by which God preserved David's life until the death of Saul. But it is yet more precious to see in these so many adumbrations of what is recorded in such passages as Matthew 2.16, Luke 4.29, John 8.59, John 10.31, 39, and so forth. Here passing on, let us seek to make practical application unto ourselves of what has just been referred to. God promised Abraham a son in whom all the nations of the earth should be blessed. Genesis 12.3 Yet he performed it not for thirty years. Genesis 21.2 God anointed David king over Israel. Yet before the kingdom was actually given to him, his faith was severely tested and he was called on to endure many sore buffetings he was hated, persecuted, outlawed, and hunted like a partridge on the mountains. First Samuel twenty six twenty and so forth. Yet was he enabled to say, "I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry." Psalm forty one. So the Christian has been begotten to a glorious inheritance. But we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 It is only through faith and patience we inherit the promises. Hebrews 6.12 Another thing which God did at that time toward furthering the great work of redemption was his inspiring David to show forth Christ and his salvation in divine songs. David was endowed with the spirit of prophecy and is called a prophet, Acts 2, 29 and 30, so that hereto he was a type of Christ. Jonathan Edwards said, This was a great advancement that God made in this building. And the light of the gospel, which had been gradually growing from the fall, was exceedingly increased by it. For whereas before there was but here and there a prophecy given of Christ in a great many ages, now here Christ is spoken of by David abundantly in multitudes of songs, speaking of his incarnation, life, death. Resurrection, ascension into heaven, His satisfaction, intercession, His prophetical, kingly and priestly office, His glorious benefits in this life and that which is to come, His union with the church and the blessedness of the church in Him, the calling of the Gentiles, all these things concerning Christ and His redemption are abundantly spoken of in the book of Psalms. Unquote. To quote again from this spirit-taught man, now first it was that God proceeded to choose a particular city out of all the tribes of Israel to place His name there. There is several times... Mention made in the law of Moses of the children of Israel's bringing their oblations to the place which God should choose, as Deuteronomy 125 7 But God had never proceeded to it till now. The tabernacle and ark were never pitched, but sometimes in one place and sometimes in another. But now God proceeded to choose Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was never thoroughly conquered or taken out of the hands of the Jebusites till David's time. It is said in Joshua 15, 63, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah, could not drive them out. But now David wholly subdued it, as we have an account in Second Samuel 5. And now God proceeded to choose that city to place his name there as appears by David's bringing up the ark thither soon after. And therefore this is mentioned afterwards as the first time God proceeded to choose a city to place his name there. 2 Chronicles 6, 5 and 6 and chapter 12 verse 13. The city of Jerusalem is therefore called the holy city. And it was the greatest type of the church of Christ in all the Old Testament. It was redeemed by David, the captain of the hosts of Israel, out of the hands of the Jebusites, to be God's city, the holy place of His rest forever where He would dwell. As Christ, the captain of His people's salvation, redeemed His church out of the hands of devils to be His holy and beloved city. And therefore, how often does the scripture, when speaking of Christ's redemption of his church, call it by the names of Zion and Jerusalem? This was the city that God had appointed to be the place of the first gathering and erecting of the Christian church after Christ's resurrection of that remarkable pouring out of the Spirit of God on the apostles and primitive Christians. And the place whence the gospel was to sound forth into all the world, the place of the first Christian church that was to be, as it were, the mother of all other churches in the world. Agreeably to that prophecy, Isaiah 2, 3, and 4, Out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Unquote. Arthur Pink. Continued in the March Studies. Study number four Profiting from the Word, the Scriptures and the Promises. The divine promises made known the good pleasure of God's will unto his people. To bestow upon them the riches of His grace, they are the outward testifications of His heart, who from all eternity loved them and foreappointed all things for them and concerning them. In the person and work of His Son, God has made an all-sufficient provision for their complete salvation both for time and eternity to the intent that they might have a true, clear, and spiritual knowledge of the same, it has pleased the Lord to set it before them in the exceeding great and precious promises which are scattered up and down in the Scriptures as so many stars in the glorious firmament of grace, by the which they may be assured of the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning them, and take sanctuary in Him accordingly, and through this medium have real communion with Him in His grace and mercy at all times, no matter what their case or circumstances may be. The divine promises are so many decorations to bestow some good or remove some ill, as such They are a most blessed making known and manifesting of God's love to His people. There are three steps in connection with God's love.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.